From Metro Edge, this is Edge of Greatness, a show for cutting-edge professionals and thinkers alike about entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and game changers on their journey to personal and professional success. Welcome to the Edge of Greatness podcast. And Sarah, today we had an unbelievable conversation with John Bissell. And with John, it was my favorite part was hearing from the CEO and founder of a a post IPO company, how they went from basically two employees to raising five, uh, $500 million. Um, and, um, hearing that what it took along the way was, it was really, really mind blowing for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think along those lines as well, it's, it's raising half a billion dollars while also building credibility. Um, you know, being a startup, you have to build credibility from the ground up and hope that other people believe in your mission as well while you're building a business. So that piece was so fascinating to me. Yeah, fun for me to hear too. So with that being said, enjoy our conversation with John Bissell. John is the co-founder and co-CEO of Origin Materials. Origin is a materials technology company that is carbon negative, based in West Sacramento with a mission to transition the world to sustainable materials. John grew up here in Sacramento, went to Rio Americano High School and UC Davis. He's raised over half a billion dollars and credits a lot of his success to find the most talented individuals to surround himself with, with, which we look forward to learning more about. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Dude, so awesome having you. Give us like, just like in the most simple way possible, like what is Origin? Like, what are you guys doing right now? Yeah, so we're we're as you said, we're a materials technology company, and and what that means is um, we we develop new ways of making materials, and um, and as you know, we may end up talking about it a little bit later. We also because of the ways we can make new materials, we can also make new materials entirely. Um, so new ways to make them and new stuff. Um, and materials sometimes is something that uh, gets lost, I think, in the, in the general public consciousness. And so I'll, I'll just, I find it useful to give sort of a brief on materials themselves. And um, when when we talk about, or I talk about materials or the industry, uh, the chemical industry talks about materials, what we mean is basically all of the stuff that you deal with in your day-to-day life, right? We're all used to a pretty digital life where uh, you go online and we understand the idea of data and all this other stuff and how it gets maneuvered in different ways in order to provide the digital services that we care about. Um, but materials are literally everything that isn't digital is a material. Um, so everything from what your laptop is made out of, semiconductors, your desk, your carpet, your car, your clothes, your personal care products, um, you know, even food to a large extent uh, is something that comes out of what I would call the broader materials industry. And so that's what we're trying to decarbonize. So effectively, everything that isn't uh, bits and and maybe electrons, right? If it's not a bit and it's not an electron, we're trying to decarbonize it. Okay, because like when I first learned about Origin, which, which maybe like five years ago or or so, I was like, I'd heard this like plastics, like they were all about like, like I was thinking like water bottle not made from fossil fuels, but that's not like that's like one piece of the puzzle, right? Right. Yeah, that's one thing. So what's interesting is people think plastics, uh, which is not a terrible thing to think when it comes to materials, um, but polymers more broadly, right? A, a plastic is sort of a subset of, of polymers. And uh, polymers more broadly are really what, if it's not a metal and it's not a glass, it's probably a polymer in our life. Um, and so uh, really they are a huge part of materials. But what we think of as a plastic, a plastic package 
is particularly notable because we're used to, you know, opening a box and having a bunch of packaging material in there and, you know, getting our food out or our new thing that we just ordered online or whatever it is, right? So the, the packaging is the extra thing that's transient in our life. And we're sort of, we're trained to notice things that are transient. But the reality is it's it's just one of all the, you know, literally, if you look around your room, every single thing that you see is something that came out of the materials industry. And it's almost invariably a metal, glass, or a polymer of some sort, including the clothes you're wearing, right? So the clothes you're wearing, if it's cotton, then it's a cellulose polymer. And if it's um, polyester, then it's PET polymer. It's actually made out of the same stuff that you make uh, water bottles out of. Um, could be nylon, uh, you know, even Kevlar is, uh, which of, of course is notable for um, personal protection vests, is um, is a polymer, right? All these things are polymers. They're just different kinds of polymers that have different properties. Dude, you're but, so like, that's like, I, I remember studying it like um, chemistry in the past and like, it, that's all like, I've forgotten all, but you're so like <laughs> smart on this stuff. And like, when I think about CEOs, like some are just really good at running companies and I can tell like you, you, you know, the fine details as well, which is cool to. Yeah. yeah, I think it, it I, I think that's true uh, for a lot of founders, right? Of course, you you end up knowing details about your business and uh, you have to, right? That's that's the name of the game. In my world, what that means is you kind of have to know all the way down to the details about exactly what everything is made out of and why, right? <laughs> now, everything is a little bit strong, right? You, no matter how much you study, you can't know all of it. Um, but uh but you know, you end up having to know a lot about exactly why we use the materials that we do, um, and there are really interesting historical reasons for a lot of those. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. All of that is super fascinating, and I will say, when I read materials, I was like, "What a broad term!" But it really is that broad. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and also you can one one of the things, and this gets into our business. Um, one of the things about that that's so broad uh, is that there really aren't that many ingredients into all the materials that we use in everyday yeah. life. Right. So you think of all these different things and obviously they're sort of manifestly different, right? The way that my iPhone feels or the cover around my iPhone feels different than the way my desk feels, but you're actually sort of recombining the same, you know, maybe two dozen, broadly speaking, kind of Lego bits together in different ways to make all of these materials. Sometimes a little bit of sprinkle of fairy dust in there. And, um, <laughs> and so if you, if you want, that's one of the reasons why we get after so many different things is because what we're actually doing is changing the Lego blocks that you use to bake, build these materials to recombine into all these different things. And by changing the Lego blocks, not only do you let people decarbonize lots of different materials, every material that uses that particular Lego block, right? You can suddenly get it, get after. Um, yeah. And that's a lot of them. But if there are new Lego blocks, you give people new options. How do I yeah. combine that new Lego block with other existing ones in ways that gives me better performance? more environmental benefits, all those kinds of things. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, we, I, we've got a lot to cover here and I do want to get to everything, <laughs> but I've got one more question about this that I think would be useful for listeners. Can you dumb down for everybody what carbon negative means? Because I think that's a yeah. super important term, especially today. So sure. Yeah. A little bit? Yeah. So there's, um, we have, uh, you know, the, the brief version is we have CO2 in the atmosphere, right? That CO2 causes a problem because what it does is it, it retains heat, retains heat in a very specific way. You can think of it like a blanket or a greenhouse, which is why it's called a greenhouse gas effect. Um, what we care about when we talk about carbon negative, right? Or low carbon even is when it's carbon negative, by the time you're done running the process, now where you draw the lines on your process, right? The way you made something matters. But when you're, by the time you're done, there's actually less CO2 in the atmosphere 
when you're done than there was when you started, right? That's what carbon negative means. Um, Now, there are lots of disagreements out there about exactly how you should be measuring these things. There's a lot of uncertainty. So you would think that, you know, from a technical perspective, maybe we know the answer for how to measure all these things. But from an economic one, it's often very challenging. For example, there's lots of disagreement around exactly how you should farm in order to keep carbon in the ground best. Um, so dirt is substantially comprised of, of carbon. Mm-hmm. And we know how to measure how much carbon there is in the ground. The problem is going out and dropping core samples, right, in farmland every couple acres uh, to see what your average carbon content is really expensive. I've got to pay a guy to go drive out there and sink a core, right, pull it out, take it back to the lab, measure it at a bunch of points to see what the carbon con- content was. And so there's, uh, I say that because there doesn't make sense. So there's a lot of uncertainty. We actually don't know a lot of these things, which is why there's a lot of um, uh, uh, disagreement about exactly how you should be measuring it uh, when it comes to companies, right? Or technologies. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. That's super helpful. Mm -hmm. So let's go backwards a little bit. Younger John in your younger years, pre-child and giant puppy. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you study in school and in your earlier years? What did you want to be when you grew up essentially? Yeah. So, uh, well, what I studied was chemical engineering at Davis. Um, and I got into chemical engineering kind of the same way that I'd say like 90% of the people that I ask that are chemical engineers. And that's this is a somewhat common question. I say, how'd you get into chemical engineering? Cause the answer is actually surprisingly commonly the same, which is, well, I was good at math, science, well, science defined as uh, chemistry, physics, and biology. Um, And uh, I looked at the list of uh, disciplines, and there were a bunch of different engineering types. And somebody said, you know, you're good at all those things, you should probably do chemical engineering. And that's how everybody ends up in it. Nobody knows what a chemical engineer does. They do it because of it's, it's based on basically like your your uh, NFL combine as a as an exiting um, <laughs> senior, right? And by the way, you have to choose chemical engineering broadly, right? You've got to choose your major before you enter university um, because otherwise you won't have time to finish. So it's true of a lot of engineering disciplines now, but it was, it was always particularly true of Kenny. So uh, I had no idea what exactly a chemical engineer did. I frankly thought it was more like a, 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 a more mathematical chemist was sort of what I imagined. Of course, that's not at all what a chemical engineer is for the most part. Chemical <laughs> engineers are more like a cross between a mechanical engineer um, with an enormous budget, right? Uh, and um, so we get to go build plants. That's what we do. Uh, chemical plants, refineries, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, and a physical chemist, which is probably closer to what I thought a chemical engineer was, was a, is a physical chemist. And that's actually probably where I, I'm best. I'm sort of like an, a, 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 a relative... A, a modestly hands-on physical chemist is probably what my specialty <laughs> is these days. Um, but uh, yeah, and then I started, um, I, I just, you know, this is going to sound a little bit trite probably, but I've just always re- really been curious about things. So if somebody tries to teach me something actively because they've decided I should know it, I really don't have a lot of interest. Um, and that was always challenging for me. But if you sit me down and just sort of give me a day, even as like a seven-year-old, um, and give me a day, uh, to do whatever I want. What I'm going to do is go sit in a corner with a bunch of books. And I'm probably going to read about animals and geology and geochemistry and all that kind of stuff. I used to grab my dad's medical textbooks and I would sit in the corner all day reading medical textbooks um, because why not, right? It was cool. So that was how I really, like, I think I always knew I was going to do something um, cognitively driven, 
but I didn't know exactly what that was going to be. I think by default, I probably thought I was going to be a doctor for a long time because that's what a lot, a lot of my family is doctors. Well, so you were just like naturally curious. I, like I'm that's so you were almost like predisposed to this. Like, I really want to read. Like, I, I wasn't like that at all. Like, I wanted to be outside, like skateboarding and stuff like that. Um, or what you know, whatever it was, like with you know, um, but so like, did you get that from your parents? And, and like, you know, like also, like, is the entrepreneurial part of you, is that also from your parents, or where'd that come from? Yeah, I think the on the on the um, cognitive side, I think, or, or sort of cognitive practices side. Uh, I think that's just like anybody else in a lot of ways, you know, if you're good at something that has an intrinsic reward. And so I felt like, and so then you do more of it and then you get better at it. This is sort of the same logic as to why you typically have um, almost all professional soccer players were born in the same couple of months, right? Because they happen to be the biggest kids on the field in the beginning. And so they end up being a little bit more physically developed and then they have more fun because they're successful and then they end up putting more energy in. Right. And so, um, like a domino was, effect, basically. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's um, uh, and so I I think that was sort of what drove it for me was yeah, my parents were rewarding me for having conversations at the dinner table as a young kid about how stuff worked, right? And I also got to to my you know my parents would come back and they'd talk about what happened at the office, right? Uh, and they were doctors, and so what are you talking about? You're talking about you know physiology and and pathology and sort of how the body works and in a pretty scientific way. And so that was sort of the natural conversation, and that was fun, and I was good at it, and so that got reinforced. Um, the, the what was it? the second thing you asked? Oh, entrepreneurial side. Yeah. So my the entrepreneurial side, I think, really comes from um, uh, from my mom's side. So. Um, on my mom's side, actually, my uh, the, the whole family's relatively, I would say, like entrepreneurial, and and in past generations was entrepreneurial by necessity. So um, my uh, my mom's my grandfather on my mom's side was an Okie, uh, so he came over on a flatbed train car <laughs> as an eight year old um, by himself to California and was picking fruit um, in order to make money because his dad had died in Oklahoma when he was a kid. So he's picking fruit in order to make enough money for his mom and his siblings to come over from Oklahoma and have a place to stay. And he was always, you know, uh, he's an interesting guy and he, um, he was always looking for something that he could do that made sense. Um, but was, a, was also a really ethical guy. So an interesting combination of those two was sort of a, you know, he was a hustler in the modern sense, right? Not hustle, like a hustle, a pool table or something like that. Although he probably, if he hadn't had some ethical constraints, he probably would have, he had that personality type. But, um, but, uh, yeah, he was always looking for what's the thing, what's the right thing to be doing? What's the thing that's gonna, um, gonna make a little bit more money Uh, and did very well, you know? Isn't that kind of like origin in a way? Like, like, it seems like, like origins, like, Hey, where, where is the next phase of materials coming from? Probably not, probably not, um, oil-based petroleum-based and, but also like there seems to be a huge opportunity there. That's a cool connection. Yeah. I think. You know, um, to to be fair, Ryan, my co-founder, and I started uh, Origin. I think really with a um, a little bit of a drive to start something new, right? And uh, and I'm sure there's uh, some some significant ego involved, right? Um, who thinks they're smarter than a a 22 year old um, chemical engineer who uh, <laughs> they really think they're hot shit coming out of school? My my wife, who's a, a an engineer as well, will um she she sort of lovingly dreads um, gatherings with lots of chemical engineers because all chemical engineers think they're God's gift to um, <laughs> everything that's ever happened, right? They'll, everybody can tell you what a chemical engineer did that made whatever industry or discipline you're talking about uh, successful. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah. So we came out and we thought we were pretty good at what we were doing. And uh, even though we didn't know anything yet. And um, we sort of looked at the industry and said, well, geez, I mean, if I go work at a big chemical company, I could spend my entire career um, and really never make any impact. Right. I'm just a, I'm just a cog in the system. And I think, you know, being in California, especially in 2007, 8, 9, 10, you know, there is a real tech bug. Um, I mean, there is now even more so, but there was then. And so the idea that you could start something new and that that was actually maybe a better way to do stuff was to start something new rather than doing it inside of a big legacy company um, was pretty inherent to the way we started. Now, we didn't know enough to know if we were right at the time. I think that there are elements of what we were onto that was that were correct, um, which is that I think that there's some, you know, pretty ossified elements of the existing chemical and uh, and fossil industries that prevent them from being able to successfully go after decarbonization um, with new technology and new ways of doing things. But uh, but we didn't really know the details of that then. Yeah, I'm curious, John, um, you know, back at the, the beginning of Origin, you guys are starting this company. How does that work? Like for every entrepreneur listening to this, for Josh and I, right? How does it work to go start your own business to build something from the ground up and you're 22 fresh out of college and have these big ideas? Well, I think for us, it what there are some, of course, there are some elements that are the same, but but I think there are a lot of things that were different for us. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, the first is that the customers in the chemical industry, almost without exception, at least in our, our sort of layer of innovation, which is pretty close to what you would call sort of um, fundamental or foundational materials. Some people call it basic materials, but it's a little different. Um, you're only dealing with extraordinarily large customers or companies as customers, right? So you're talking about, you know, a natural customer for us was BP, right? Um, and and that's, you know, as a, especially back then, as a 22-year-old or 23-year-old trying to call up BP. And by the way, the kind of offtake contract that you need to make a plant make sense uh, now we were we were not ready for those kinds of offtake agreements, but just to give you a sense of why this is so different, the kind of offtake scale that you need for to make a single plant make sense, um, you know, is at a minimum in the tens of millions um, of dollars over multiple years. So you're talking about you know fifty hundred million dollar commitments by a by BP right or some other company right. BP has now sold the business that would that made them sort of the logical customer for us at that time. So you know sort of. Um, uh, they're a good example historically, but what I wouldn't necessarily take anything today from that. But um, uh, but you know, walking in there and even at a company as large as that, you know, a hundred million dollar contract is not nothing, right? And and you can easily look at you know half billion or billion dollar contracts as the as sort of the right contract size. Um, and so it's very different than calling up and saying, hey, I've got a web app or say, you know, software as a service that I think you might want to pay 10 bucks a month for to see if it's any good, right? Yeah. Um, oh my God, those are so different. Yeah, and so that really made a lot of the stuff that we did different. We had to, we had to build credibility in an incredibly aggressive way for a long time um, before people would even talk to you. Uh, and then we also had to have a much more structured theory of value for what we were doing early on, because you're talking about lots of investment, both time uh, and money, 
before you can get to the point that you have sufficient credibility for a customer like, you know, like an oil major to take you even remotely seriously, right? And so that was all very different. I think in terms of starting a company, right, that, there's all the, the standard stuff like you got to put your legal documents together and file them and you've got to, you know, figure out who your co-founder is going to be and what's your arrangement going to be. Um, how are you going to structure power, frankly, inside the organization and decision making? Um, all that kind of stuff, uh, I think, is more similar. Um, and in our case, you know, we we had a lot of folks, but due to some of the historical reasons associated or ways that the, we, we sort of started the company, we actually had a, sort of a gaggle of folks um, in the beginning that all thought that they wanted to be founders. What was really interesting is as soon as you, uh, as soon as we said, okay, well, let's go do this and we need to do it full time, which means a certain level of sort of sacrifice in terms of income and all those kinds of things, which is hard to do as a student since you don't have any cash pad to sit back on, that sort of winnowed out people who were genuinely interested versus people who maybe... Um, uh, you know, for, for, in many cases, for very understandable reasons, didn't want to make, um, the commitment that was required, I think, to start a company. So, mm -hmm. but that's all sort of typical startup stuff. So th there's, there's a, a set of things that are common and there's a set of things that I think are pretty unique to the, sometimes people call it deep tech, uh, industries. Totally. So, do, so do you spend like, is it like one year, like five years? How, how long do you spend like just creating some just creating that credibility and and define that value proposition until you're like, maybe we can start asking for a contract. So um, there, there's a really, uh, there are lots of different theories about how you should approach that. Um, I'd say there to, to give you some building blocks around that. So I, I'd say in the chemical industry, which is one particular genre of quote unquote deep tech, um, you're looking at, 10 years to develop technology and a process and get it to sort of uh, commercial readiness. That's sort of a, you know, could be a little bit shorter, not too much shorter, could be a lot longer, but 10 years is a pretty good range. So you basically have to make your way along that far enough that um, people kind of feel like there's line of sight to commercial readiness. Now, you know, if you're better at painting the picture or if they have fewer alternatives, then maybe they get to see that line of sight a little bit more easily than they would if everything's working great and um, and you can't explain it very well and you're not a good storyteller. So so you know there's some range in there, but you're talking you're talking years, right? I mean, meaningful fractions of a career in order to develop technology enough to even have the conversations that you want to have. I think the world. By the way, I say that I think the world's a little different now, right? People are hungrier for um for this kind of innovation. Uh, in the last couple of years, and I hopefully for the for, uh, for the um, foreseeable future, uh, than they were ten years ago, um, coming right out of the global financial crisis. But um, but it's still it's it's different, right? You don't code up a minimum viable product in like a couple of weeks, <laughs> right? Naturally, okay. So you're like in your 14, I think, right? Is that right? Yeah, 14 okay. years, then 10 years to, for credibility. Like, if I want to start a business and I have a 10 year time horizon just to even get like credibility, like how do I survive financially? throughout that period? So there, uh, there are a few different ways that people have tried to approach that in our industry. Um, but I'd say the challenge associated with doing that and getting the, and, and it's not just surviving, right? You need to actually make real progress um, through technology and on the commercial side um, in order to, to, to get the right kind of credibility to go to the capital, go build the big stuff is the reason why there haven't really been any successful chemical startups in a long time. 
right? Um, I think, you know, sometimes we look to, in fact, I have a book right here that is um, a great book about the founding of Dow Chemical. Dow Chemical was effectively a chemical startup. I mean, you read this book, which is an account by the, I think, sort of the last protege of the starting team of Dow Chemical, because Dow was started in 1904, I think. Um, and it reads like a startup. I mean, you you could almost like, uh, you know, track from yeah. Ben Horowitz's hard thing about hard things to the decisions that, you know, that Herbert Henry Dow uh, was making all the way through, right? So so it isn't that the model doesn't work, but I, it's very hard in today's world um, because it takes a long time, right? And and a long time and a lot of resources. Do you... Now, you do you start fundraising like just like is it with like friends and family first? Like how like how do how did you do it particularly? Yeah, we started with um uh some friends and family and then um and and in particular uh, a few investors who are are local and uh actually understood um one they understood construction industrial construction really well, which I think was helpful because if you don't understand industrial construction, you look at the big capital numbers that are going to be required to, to for a, a deep tech, uh, a deep technology, and you say, God, I just don't understand how that could ever happen. But if you build stuff that's industrial um, uh, process plants regularly, then, you know, you, you, you know that it happens all the time, right? People build $100 million or billion dollar facilities all the time. Um, but that's hard if it's purely in the abstract. So that was one, two. They um, they were in a field that was uh, related, not the same as the chemical world, but it was related to um, to our technology. And so, again, they could sort of see, one, the value proposition and the opportunity, and they, they could see their way through a lot of the risks that we were going to face um, better than I think a traditional tech investor could. Um, so that was one group. And then the first uh, sort of venture capital inv style investment that we got um, which was in 2010, was actually a guy coming out of the plastics industry who was also a tech investor. So he understood um, polymers and packaging extremely well. And in particular, he's he's a uh, he's a bit of a prophet, I would say, in a lot of ways. Uh, some of the stuff that he has been talking about with me, I mean, for hours and hours and hours since 2008, 9, 10, um, is, is happening almost exactly the way he thought it would now, right? So I think he really had a vision of what the future was going to look like, and he could see how we fit into that future. Um, and so he was a, a, a godsend for us. I, we wouldn't have made it without those those investors I just mentioned. Th both classes, right? We needed that Amazing. kind of support and understanding. So, so without him, it never happens. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. John, I'm super curious over the last 14 years, um, what are some of the toughest times that you faced with Origin, and how did you and Ryan both work? through those yeah so i mean as we were just uh talking about right so there's a reason why there aren't a bunch of successful chemical startups in the last couple of decades um yeah. it's not that they don't exist at all but they tend to be a particular genre right a, a sort of high specialty genre um and a big part of that is uh one the the, the longevity right so it takes a long time to do the work uh, and two, the capital intensity, which is, you know, by the way, why we've raised over half a billion dollars is because that's sort of what you need to do in order to be successful in this sort of in this zone. But along the way, you can't always match up your development needs with um, cash timing, right? Especially given the global financial crisis happened right in the beginning, right? And there were sort of echoes of that or ripples from that for years, right? I mean, 2000, 
I don't think people felt like we were fully free of the GFC until 2015, maybe, right? I mean, it was it was very much recent memory and in some some sectors active memory. Um, or in uh, uh, even in 2012, 13, 14, right? Um, and so when that couldn't happen, we you know we tried to always retain the knowledge so we would never lose progress. And we would try to retain the capability to continue making progress um, no matter what. But it was, you know, it wasn't easy, right? People talk about uh, uh, taking $20 million rounds and uh, only selling five or 10% of their their company. That wasn't how it was. <laughs> yeah. Some of that was the time, but it was also the industry. Totally, totally. Um, you know, as as this conversation continues, I do want to switch a little bit to the more the personnel side. And it's something that Josh mentioned in our intro as well. Um, but starting with you as a leader and CEO of a company, what are some of your biggest strengths and how do you leverage some of those strengths to to lead a company? Yeah, I think um I think that getting spectacular people is um is one it, it's important across all industries right you, you always have to do that but for us it's it's absolutely paramount um and it's be, it's it's for a somewhat specific you know I, I talk a lot about our industry right because i think it's different than people are used to and i think people haven't um they haven't sort of explained how you do it uh in our industry as much as they've done it in some of the others and so in in our industry there are so many things you need to be good at, right? You have to be good at obviously the technology side, but by the way, the technology side is not just something one person can know all of, right? You've got to have people who know chemistry, engineering, um, analytics. Um, you need to have people who are good at project, project execution because that's going to be tied in relatively closely to the technology application development, which is the use of the products, right? And then application development is, you know, not just one thing, it's lots. And that's a, of course, you also have to still be good at all the normal things, you know, HR and finance and general operations, planning, budgeting, right? All the normal functions of a company. But also, you know, when we sell, I was talking about uh, these large contracts, right? Well, that means you've got to have a good legal structure. You've got to have good um, uh, marketing and pricing, you, you know, and then there's the regulatory side because there's definitely been regulatory capture in the chemical industry. And so that means you need to be able to navigate all those things. Well, when I get when I, you know, I, I haven't even gone through all of them, but if you think about all those different capabilities, um, those can't all be their own departments when you're a startup, yeah. right? It's mm. just too many people. Yeah. Um, so when I when we're hiring, we're not hiring, you know, 25 people across five jobs, right? Because, you know, 20 of those people are software engineers. And yes, maybe there's a little bit of difference and you want to build that team the right way, but like they're kind of all the same generalized skill set that's not how it is right we have world class experts across you know 30 different capability sets because you have to um and when you do that you need and especially when you're small and sometimes you need one person wearing several of those capability hats right as opposed to several people under one of those capabilities um you just have to have people who are great they need yeah. to be they need to pick up new skills quickly they need to have excellent command of what they're doing they need to have great work ethic. They need to make good decisions on their own. They need to be excellent in communication and teamwork. They need to understand the needs of the overall business and what you can short resource and what you can't. 
And so this is all a long way of getting around to, we have made um, one of our primary skills finding and hiring people like that. So yeah. people who are just absolutely spectacular are, that's probably what we are actually best at in yeah. the whole, in the, like across everything. We're best yeah. at finding and hiring those people. And I would say that's probably what I'm best at these days yeah. is that's awesome. closing those people. Yeah. And that's arguably one of the most important pieces of starting a business and having a business. Yes. Um, I am curious too, just quickly, how many employees does Origin have? Um, we are, I don't know what our last officially published number was, but um, I think it's circa 150, no, north okay. of 150, I think, something in that range. Awesome. Awesome. John, cool. John, how, like, okay, so you find this amazing person. How, how do you sell Origin to them? Like, cause that sounds like the hardest part. Like they, it sounds like they could probably go work anywhere in the world the way you've described these people. Yeah, I, they can't. I mean, so we have people who literally are coming out of some of the largest companies on the planet and most sophisticated companies on the planet. And they are some of the best performing people in those companies, right? It's a 20,000 person company and they're the best and they come to us. And, um, uh, it's not cause we pay five times what they were making previously. Right. It's um we can't afford to. It what what I think drives it is um one people want to make a difference, right? So even if you're the best person in a twenty thousand or a sixty thousand person company, it's very unlikely that you are driving huge change, especially if it's a two hundred year old company, a hundred and fifty year old company, right? It's very unlikely that you are driving substantial change in that company. Second thing is um they want to work with other great people, so. What we find drives people like that is it, it is both the desire to work with other fantastic people. And of course, there are lots of fantastic people in a lot of these legacy companies. Um, but they are almost as motivated to not work with people who are not good. Does that make sense? So yeah. if, I, if I get to work with five great people, but I also have to work with 25 you know, deeply mediocre people every day, that's pretty low value for me. It's um, kind of like being like the, you know, like you want to start yourself with people that are smarter than you, not like you're the smartest guy in the room and you're not going to keep growing. Exactly. And so if we can take that ratio and say, look, maybe you only get to work with, well, in our case, often it goes the other way. We, we're both saying you don't get to work with just five unbelievable people. You get to work with 20 unbelievable world-class people every day. And, and we hope that you don't have to work with anybody that's deeply mediocre. And if you do, we're going to try to do something about that deeply mediocre person, right? Um, that's a big part of the value proposition for these guys. Now, there's some like table stakes, you know, you've got to you've got to make sure that the technology uh, makes sense and that they think it makes sense, right? That your approach makes sense, that you are a good leader, um, that you listen to them. Uh, all those sorts of things are, I would call, table stakes. But, um, but once you get a nidus of really excellent people, that is a really, really strong value proposition. That and the ability to make real change. And the two are liked, right? Of course, they they self-support. Yeah, man, that's so cool. I, I love the way you phrase that. Like it's like that, it's almost like that first hire is like the most important one because in the second, the second hire sees the first guy. And then but it also sounds like, you know, it probably starts from the top. Like if you're not, you know, if you're deeply mediocre, then they're like, oh, I gotta get out of here. So yeah. And maybe. and what's hard about that is um now, when now that we're a little bit more mature, it's it's easier to 
provide sort of the table stakes for everybody right. and give that high value. So I can go get a lot my, my sort of market of fantastic people is way larger now than it was before. When you're small, I, I you're exactly right that for those first few people that you hire make all the difference. How do you get those people when you're an you know nobody knows who you are and you have no credibility as a startup? Well, it's really hard. And that's where I think we sort of honed our uh, our capabilities there was, I think what we're really good at, yes, we're good at identifying people who are genuinely world-class and amazing and everybody knows it. We're also really good at finding people who are world-class and amazing and nobody's figured it out yet. Oh, cool. And so that is the almost. team that we built in the beginning. And I'll tell you, we did a really good job because you get to see those folks play with people who are well recognized world class now and brother they can play like <laughs> we got it right <laughs> okay so it's easy to like like let's for, say for example like it's easy to sign like barry bonds when he's already like a superstar yeah but to sign like you know like someone you haven't heard of yet and is going to be the next superstar that's like that's what you guys are really good at yes exactly Oh, that's cool. Um, we're going to wrap up in a little bit, but I just wanted, because that sounds a lot like mission and vision. And we had a cool convo about mission and vision. And I just love to like hear you like rephrase, like, you know, what, what's, what is it all about to you? Like what drives you? Yeah, I think, um, so, so mine, I think is, is slightly broader than, or my personal one is slightly broader than origin's mission, but they're pretty close. And, and for origin, it's very much, we need to do whatever is necessary to develop and make the materials that will enable human beings to be successful for the next thousand years. Um, that's the key. That's what we're focused on. Now, there's a bunch of practical elements about that. You know, in today's world, the only way to do that is to, to be able to access the capital markets, right? The only way to access the capital markets is to be extremely profitable. And so, you know, you get to some pretty, pretty um pedestrian um sort of local objectives, but they're in service of something different in our case, right? Um, and then mine, my personal one is, um, I, you know, feel like I was given a lot of opportunity uh, in my life. And it's really, really important to me that I use that to the best of my ability. You know, I, um, I often talk about now, this wasn't quite the same concrete driver before, but um, now with a with a young kid, I sort of think of in 20 years sitting down at the dinner table and um, and if the world has gone to shit, right? Uh, God, I hope I can say I left it all on the field trying to do everything I possibly could to make this right. And uh, maybe I got there and maybe I didn't, right? But if I didn't leave it all on the field, then I don't know if I could live with myself, you know? Yeah. I love that. That's huge. I mean... Yeah. I would love to end this piece of our conversation on that note, because that is really great perspective. And I really appreciate you sharing that perspective with us. Um, is there anything else you would like to share before we jump into what we call our rapid fire round? No, let's hit it. All right. Uh, quick answers, whatever pops into your head first. Um, favorite restaurant in Sacramento? Ooh. Um, you know, I love the, uh, the pizza at Easton Bounty. I'm oh. a huge fan of in particular. Yeah. We've got lots of favorite restaurants, but that is one of them. I love that. 
uh, favorite book or author? Do I have to pick only one? No, no. So, so I think I'll say the most impactful book for me um, was called is called American Prometheus, and it's a biography of Robert Oppenheimer, and it's um, it's spectacular. Uh, I think it gives, for me, it gave context about. Um, yeah, so I see myself as a scientist um, first and foremost, and it it gave me context um, about the world that sort of we all live in, and in particular that I live in. You know, where did this stuff come from? When was it developed? What did it take to develop these tech, this this understanding of the world? And that gives some view of what is it going to take going forward. And and one of the things that I really loved reading um, is that in that book was that Oppenheimer was actually profoundly insecure. So he was the guy who. Mm. Uh, ran the technical side of the Manhattan Project and was um, largely considered to be a, a spectacular genius, even by that crew of spectacular geniuses. Right? He could, he was sort of known to be able to walk into a room and um, listen to a conversation about uh, you know some incredibly difficult topic, you know, shockwave mechanics or something like that, um, which was often being developed, you know, right there. And they, he was watching sort of science happen in front of him, the edge of knowledge be pushed out. And he could synthesize the entire conversation after listening for about 10 minutes into one sort of pithy quip that that underscored exactly what it was that they had to describe, right? Or that they had to figure out. And um, so I and the fact that he really was haunted by um uh feeling that he didn't sort of do enough in life. Um, you know, he didn't win a Nobel Prize, which really got under his skin when everybody around him did. Um, not because he felt like he deserved one and they didn't, right? But because he was like, God, I just didn't do enough that was valuable to get one, right? How mm. could that have happened? Um, that was really, uh, that was, that made it uh, an impact on me. So I love that book. Um, I think some others that really, disc uh, authors in particular that really um, outline the way I think about the whole world are George Dyson. So he's the the son of Freeman Dyson, who is um, uh, a physicist on the Manhattan Project, who, um, although only parts of it, but uh, uh, who unified quantum electrodynamics, the two different types of quantum electrodynamics. Incredible guy. Freeman Dyson was just spectacular. But then his son writes on the history of science and technology. And he is, uh, he's a genius, right? I mean, his father was obviously a genius. George is also obviously a genius. Um uh, and then the other is uh, I love um, Neil Stevenson. So I will read just about anything I can find um, from Neil Stevenson. Uh, and so some great books in there. I don't know that I could pick one out that I like more than the other ones. I love that. And we'll include these in our show notes too. So folks can take a look also. Thank you. Um, the next question is your favorite daily habit. I am bad at forming habits. Actually. <laughs> I um, don't know that that's a bad thing. Hmm. Depends. Um, <laughs> I don't form bad habits. I also don't tend to form good habits. Uh, I'll say that the habit that I used to like the most um, <laughs> is uh, uh, pre-pandemic was um, was I used to get to work out regularly. And I really, that just made a difference. It was very meditative for me um, at just lifting. And that's, that's a common one, but uh, I don't really get to do that that much anymore. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know that I have I sort of don't see myself as a compilation of habits in a lot of ways, um, somewhat unfortunately. So maybe this is an odd answer. I'm not sure that I have a habit that I feel like I rely on. 
Thank you for the honesty. Maybe this is your catalyst. <laughs> Maybe this is your catalyst to uh, find a habit, form a habit, or get back to some old habits. There's probably something to that. Thirty-seven years of trying to form habits. I'm not sure. <laughs> <start now. laughs> there's, there's probably something to that, though. It's just like you know, like great leaders come in all different shapes and sizes. Some are you know, like obsessed with habits and, and some maybe just aren't. So it's, it's actually refreshing to hear. <laughs> I agree. Don't, don't go too far on that. Like, <laughs> like John doesn't have habits. I don't need habits either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, the last thing, and we will end after this is your piece of advice for young professionals listening to this podcast. Yeah, I think, um, I think one of the most important things that people can do early on, and this is not, uh, maybe I'm saying it a little differently, but I, I don't think this is an original insight, but optimizing for learning um, is one of the most important things you can do early in your career. I was actually just talking to somebody about this the other day. And um, now I, I think what's important here is it's easy at the abstract to say optimize for learning. I think um, people often don't do that. They think optimizing for learning go, means go to more school, right? Um, but but uh, optimizing for learning, um, one, means that you need to be definitely getting outside your comfort zone, right? No question about it. You should be way outside your comfort zone. Um, maybe not like a mile away from it, but like you've got one toe <laughs> in your yeah. comfort zone and the rest is out. Um, I think the other is that you, sh you, know, you, you don't just sort of blindly optimize for learning. I think you need to be thinking about... Um, have some, well, let's put it this way, have some sort of um, theory of value to get back to an earlier topic, right? Have some sort of theory of value about the learning. You may be wrong and that's fine. You don't need to be exactly right. But going through that process of what is my theory of value for this learning? Go do it, go learn about it, right? And then cycle that back and um, and then change your theory of value and then you know reposition and then go learn something else, right? That iterative loop, I think is really, really important. And that's a big part of, of uh, sort of optimizing your career early on for learning. I mean, probably your whole career, you should do that. But it's if you start, in the, if you start in the early days, then you'll keep doing it through the rest of your career. <laughs> no, that's, that's great advice. That's definitely one of your habits that you don't even realize. I think. <laughs> Maybe. You're always learning and reading and get, interpreting your sword. Is that's fair. Like. Yeah. John, that's this was so fun. Thanks for being here and, and sharing. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Thank you so much we think you are brilliant and inspiring so <laughs> and we just can't wait to see what origin does next so yeah, yeah. well me neither stay tuned <laughs> see you guys take care